0: If you have your Bible, you can begin to make your way to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20 is... Where we're going to be at today, I always want to have you put your eyes on God's Word and not just take what I'm saying uh, as the truth, but test me in light of Scripture. Test everyone in light of Scripture. So Exodus chapter 20 is where we're going to be. Uh, I was thinking in this passage, because there's a a verse that we'll get to, uh, but it reminded me of uh, what I I think is a rather sad story. Uh, It's the story of Oprah Winfrey telling uh, how and why she walked away from her Christian faith. Uh, you can find the video online, but uh, she said she was in her uh, late 20s, and she was attending a church. It was a very large church, a lot of energy. She said it was the kind of church that you need to get there at 8 a.m. just to get a seat. Uh, and this particular Sunday, uh, the pastor was preaching on the attributes of God, and, and um, he said it was everyone was kind of caught up in the moment, his omniscience, his immutability, his uh, omnipresence, all, all those things. And then she said, he said something that struck her. Said, the Lord thy God is a jealous God. She said, in that moment, it didn't sit right with my spirit. Now, now, when, when Oprah says that and hears that, maybe, maybe she echoes what maybe some of you have felt in, in reading, particularly maybe passages of the Old Testament. When you come across that and you're like, well, what does that mean? Well, well Oprah said, uh, how, how can God be all powerful, all sufficient, omnipresent, all these things, and then be jealous of me? Of course, that's not what that text means, and we'll see that in a moment, but that's what she thought it meant, and, and, and from there, uh, she, she credits that as her off-ramp from Christianity. Now, now the reason I, I think that's so sad is, well, obviously, uh, walking away from the faith, but too, just her, her massive cultural influence. Uh, she echoes what maybe a lot of people have felt or, or done, but, but I wonder, like, did the, did the preacher say anything else about that, that verse? I wonder if she had an actual Christian fellowship community that she could go outside of that and, and say, hey, what do you think he meant by that? What, what was going on there? Or, or was it just a Sunday show? We're just going to show up. Did she have this kind of well, rather sad, pathetic conversation of isolation of herself, within herself of deconstruction? With no one to process that with, maybe there were other things going on in her life at the moment where this just seemed like uh, the, the 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 faith of her youth was this was an easy way out, and she wanted to pursue other things. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I only at one level only God knows. But but uh, we're we're going to look at uh, what what. What is actually in the text today? Uh, just it's going to be one part of it, but we're we're, we're now gathered in, in Exodus 20 as we work through that the people of God are gathered before the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, and and God is going to give them what's called the Mosaic Covenant or the Law, or we saw last week His Torah, His instruction for His people. The, the, this part up to the, to the book of Exodus is fairly well known. Like Most people know about the slavery in Egypt and the, the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea and the manna in the desert. But now we get to this part where it's going to take a turn, where I find a lot of Christians don't know what's going on. This is the, the mystery part. This is the part where you're like, this year I'm going to read through the Bible. And you get to Exodus 20 and you stop. Maybe out of boredom. Maybe out of confusion. Um, many reasons, but like it's going to take a shift. But I'm excited for for the next several weeks and and a couple months as we continue in here. I I believe God has some amazing things for you and me in his word. All scripture is God-breathed and useful. Well, we come today to uh, what's known as the Ten Commandments. So on the one hand, it's probably the most famous passage uh, in world history. People know about the Ten Commandments. But on the other hand, uh, surveys show us that most Christians don't know what the Ten Commandments are. Like, they can't recite them. They they have a general idea. And even if you just know them on the surface, they don't really know what the purpose is. Or they don't know, what does it have to do with us today, not under the Mosaic Covenant? Well, we'll we'll dig deeper into that over the next several weeks but today i want us to look at the ten commandments through kind of two lenses you can kind of think of the ten commandments as uh, like the american constitution it is the cornerstone of all the other laws. So there's, a, there's another 600 plus laws in the Old Testament, but they all find their roots back in the Ten Commandments. So like our Constitution, we have many, many laws, but they get challenged, and eventually the challenge comes to, are they constitutional? So, so that's how you can think of these Ten Commandments. And I want us to kind of take a bird's eye view of the Ten Commandments today uh, and look at them through two lenses. The first lens I want you to see is, as God has rescued a people and is forming and shaping a people for Himself, uh, He is laying before them what David calls the path of life in Psalm 1611. The path of life. He's laying for them a, a path for flourishing. So I want us to see, how would these commandments, then, always, and now... Provide a path for God's people to flourish. So that's the first lens. The second lens I want us to see is uh, that there are many purposes of the law. But uh, we're just looking at two today. The second one I want us to look at is what I'll call the spiritual MRI of the Ten Commandments. The spiritual MRI of the Ten Commandments. So some of you know that one of my daughters has scoliosis. So every six months or so, we find ourselves in the hospital getting x-rays and MRIs. And they're tremendously helpful because it allows us to see below the surface, see what's going on with the spine. Has has the curve increased, decreased, stayed the same? It's tremendously helpful information. But there's no button on the MRI machine that says, Okay, now straighten the spine. That's not its purpose. It's incapable of straightening her spine. And and in the same way, the Mosaic covenant is like that. It will show us, each of us, if we're honest with ourselves and God this morning, what's going on with the surface. Where's there a curve in our soul, but it is powerless to straighten our spine. But those are the two lenses I want us to look at this morning. So if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, and we'll go ahead and pick it up. I'm actually going to start us at the very end, just as it's is wrapping up. This flows out of, obviously, chapter 19. The people have gathered. Uh, if you read last week, the rest of 19, uh, the, the, the mountain is quaking. There's fire. There's smoke. There's booming trumpets. There's the booming voice of the Lord. Uh, this is an intimidating scene for the people of God. And, and, and we'll pick it up in verse 18. Listen carefully. This is God's word. It says when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke they trembled with fear they stayed at a distance and said to Moses speak to us yourself and we will listen but do not have god speak to us or we will die now, now, what's going on here? They're, they're seeing God manifest in power in, in really terrifying ways. And the last time they saw God manifest in power, it was him destroying the Egyptian army. He is the destroyer. So now it's just God and the people. And they're like, we can't handle this. We, we, you just talk to us, Moses. We don't want to talk to the Lord. They're terrified. And, and listen to what Moses says to the people. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Now this is this is interesting. Did you catch it? He says, "Don't be afraid, but have fear." So, so he said, "Listen, well, well you should you shouldn't be afraid of, of all the signs and the mountain and the fire uh, that that physical kind of pointer to what, what is actually ultimate reality. That this is this is hard for us because we live in a day and age where we like to kind of defang the line of Judah. We like to uh, make him kind of a, an old grandpa that walks around and just affirms all that we do and pats us on the head and gives us candy. Uh, but but God is the line of Judah. He is to be feared rightly and." and there is a goodness to fear. So don't don't fear the mountain that's shaking. Fear the God who makes the mountain shake because he is holy, holy, holy. And, And did you see what Moses said? In fearing him, that will keep you from sinning. Every time you and I sin, it's because we've lost the fear of God. We feel like oh he doesn't really care he doesn't see uh, he, he will forgive me he he he's not really all that holy so I'm going to do this thank this go this way but but Moses is saying like no no keep the fear of the Lord he is holy he is righteous he is all, he is the judge like keep that at the forefront of your mind and you'll walk in these these commandments no problem no problem well uh, just keep that in mind as we go through these commandments uh, together this morning so we. we jump back to verse 1 in chapter 20. It says, and God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God. Again, that's his divine name. I I am the one who has revealed myself to you. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And so just like last week and this week, the, the foundation for our relationship always begins with the grace of God. It always begins with, God, here's what I've done, how I have rescued and redeemed you. Don't forget that before I tell you what, what, what's going to happen. We saw that last week. We saw that this, this week in the New Testament we see this. We, we, they're called gospel in, the gospel indicative and the gospel imperative. So the gospel indicative is, here is what Christ has done for you. Now, in light of that truth, here is how you should respond. The imperative. There are imperatives for us. The gospel isn't just, well, Jesus saved us so I don't do anything and I don't respond and I don't be obedient. No, no. Because God is gracious, now you respond this way. If you get those two things backwards, you have no gospel. If, if our message was, uh, do these things and then God will give you grace, that's not grace that's earning your own righteousness. And so whenever we come to God, we start with the the realization, Lord, all I have is from you and for you and to you. You've given me grace, and so let me live in light of that grace and honor and obey you. So he starts even the Ten Commandments in this way. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. And then he starts with them. Again, these dual ends, How is this for their flourishing, and how is this a spiritual MRI? He says, you shall have no other gods before me, number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, so this just this this just means that the people that have known only but only pagan idolatry for four hundred years, and we, we, we were told they they gave themselves to the Egyptians' gods. There were at least sixty of them, and they would bow down and worship them. And, and now God is saying, like, listen, I am the only God, and I've invited you into relationship to, with me. You shall have no other gods before me. And so the question that we ask, kind of the diagnostic MRI question is, have you only and always worshipped God alone and not bowed down to any false idols or pursuits in your life? Only and always. And kind of, as we're going through, just kind of give yourself a score. Have I always only bowed down and worshipped God as the only God? Well, let's, let's move on to number two. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above, or on earth, beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now, this is, again, they're coming out of Egypt where all the gods, the 60-plus gods, had all their images. So you had the, the frog-faced god, Hamet, You had the, the, the crocodile god. You had the sun god, Ra. And they all had these little images that they would paint on the walls, and they would create little uh, figurines, and, and they believed the figurines had power, and they would amass these, and they would make little offerings and bow down to them, because an idol is a a God that you can manipulate. An idol is a God that you can get to do what you want, and God says, no, 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 you're not going to make an idol out of me. There are, there, there are not going to be any images of me. The, the only images of me I make, and they're in my people, the, the image bearers on the planet. And, and you are not to bow down to them and worship them. Again, it's a, it's a warning against idolatry. But then, then God, God says something that made Oprah stumble. It says, uh, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And again, when, when we, in our culture, it's understandable that for Oprah to have that response because in our a, day and age, we think of jealousy only, only through the lens of, of human sin. Like we talk about the jealous ex-boyfriend or the jealous ex-husband. or, or We see jealousy flowing over into all sorts of other uh, evils. But, but in the Bible, there's six times in the first five books of the Bible, God is described as a jealous God. There, is a, there, is a, there needs to be a category in our mind that there is a godly kind of jealousy. In fact, we can understand this, right? So, so God is coming to his people who he loves and he says, I, I have devoted myself to you. I want you to devote yourself to me. That There is a godly jealousy. Every good marriage has this right? Every good marriage has a jealousy that is, I want my spouse to be as committed to me as I am to them. I want to be in an exclusive relationship with them. So if I was like, uh, if I was indifferent to whether or not my wife was unfaithful to me, and she went out and cheated on me, and I was like, Meh, at least I'm not a jealous husband, you'd be like, that's ridiculous, No, no, no. There is a good, godly jealousy that doesn't have to flow over into evil, but that can remain in love. And this is the kind of love God has for his people. It's the jealousy that will continue to uh, make God pursue his unfaithful people throughout the rest of the Old Testament and all the way to the cross. We praise God for his zealous, jealous love to have a a desire of exclusive love relationship with you and me. This is a good thing, Oprah. Too bad no one told you that. Oprah, he's not jealous of you. He's jealous for you. He made you in his image. And he wants you to know him and be in relationship with him. That's good news. But then there's a second stumbling block right after this. It says, I am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Again, in our hyper-individualized culture, we hear Pun- punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Like, what are you talking about? That's not fair. But again, think about what's going on here. Israelite culture... Three or four generations live in a household at one time. He's simply pointing out something that we, we don't like to believe, but is absolutely true. We believe when we sin that it's just kind of private between us and God and it's not going to affect anyone else. No, no, sin doesn't work that way. Sin always spins off. Sin is, is like a grenade, and it's going to send shrapnel. And those closest to you are going to be affected by it. So in, in a household of three or four generations, take the oldest generation. They're unfaithful to God. That They say, we're, we're not going to prioritize God. We're not going to pursue God. We're going to bow down to these things. That's going to have an effect on that whole household for three or four generations in that moment, right? And, and study after study shows us, and so just for a moment, I want to speak to, as a father, as a husband, to the fathers and husbands in this room. Like every study shows us that, that the, the, the blessing of your family, by and large, lands on your shoulder. Are you going to prioritize the pursuit of God? Are you going to prioritize gathering with God's people? Are you going to prioritize knowing God's word and teaching your family? If not, don't be surprised when, Three or four generations don't follow the Lord because you don't lead by example. This is what, what God is saying. Like you have an impact. We're a household of family. The family is the cornerstone of the Israelite community. And, and, and when we sin, it doesn't just affect us. When we think our sin is private, it will affect our children. It will affect our, our, our wives and our husbands. It is dynamic. But then we, we, we don't see that the next line, that when God is gracious to us, and let me just say this. God is a God of means. He, he does often use uh, godly mothers, godly fathers, but but many of us have stories where that wasn't the case. God God's grace can and does break through uh, th- those things in our lives, and I praise God for that. Uh, but I'm just saying, by and large, God is a God of means, and He desires to uh, pass on the faith to the next generation through us and through our parents and and, and down through the line. Well, then that goes showing love to a thousand generations, just meaning forever uh, for those who love me and keep my commandments. Uh, Number three, let's look at the third one. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. So, so often probably you've heard this taught, hey, don't use God's name as a cuss word. And on a very surface level, that, that is a, a right application of this. But that, that there is much more going on below the surface on this particular command. Remember, God has revealed his divine personal name to Moses and to his people. And in the ancient Near East, to, to know the name and to, is, is to know the character and power of the person. And God has said, you're, you're my people and I'm going to give you my name. You're going to be carriers of my name in the world. So as you carry my name into the world, do not misrepresent me. Do, do not misuse that name. Do not bring shame on my name because you're carrying my name. So, so we bring shame on the name of the Lord whenever we try to co-opt His name or His way for our own purposes, political or otherwise. Well, well this is biblical. Well, well, this is what God would say. God would say, do not use my name for your own advancement. Do, do not live in such a way where the, the world could look at you and, uh, and decry my name. And so the question, the MRA question then this one is, have you always carried the name of the Lord with reverence and respect? Has your life reflected the, the glory and the majesty of God at all times, in all ways, in all your speech, every day? And again, we see below the surface, there's some problems. There's some problems. Well, he goes to number four. Remember the Sabbath day? By keeping it holy. This is the only sign of the Mosaic covenant, the the Sabbath. He says, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servants, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord, Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Again, these, these people have been in slavery for hundreds of years. They don't even have a category in their mind for a day off. And God says, uh, I, I want to bless you. I want you to get restored and renewed. I want you to find in me peace and hope. And, 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 and notice, that it isn't just for the wealthy. But, like, some could be like, okay, that sounds good. I'll take a day off. My servants will just do the work. The foreigners will do the work. God says, no, 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 no. This is an all play. This is for everybody. Your servants, your cattle, the foreigners, everyone is to slow down and pause on one day of a week. Is this not an indictment on our God of consumption? Like like I got to just get more or an indictment on trying to find our identity and and value and meaning in our work? And God says, no, you're going to stop all of that for one day and find your meaning and value in me? Isn't this a a restriction on our our God of materialism and just acquiring more and more stuff? No, God says, pause. I love how J.I. Packer puts it. He says, live slowly enough to be able to think deeply about God. Live slowly enough to be able to think deeply about God. And so built into their, the rhythm of their life one day of the week, that's the whole purpose. We're not going to do anything but spend time together and spend time with our Lord to live slowly enough to think deeply about God. And again, the MRI question is, uh, have, we, have we tried to find our identity in the stuff we have or the status we get, or the the progress we've made in our career? Have we not kept God's Sabbath holy in our lives? Number five, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Again, the cornerstone of Israelite society is the family three or four generations living in the family. So this wasn't just an instruction to children. It was instruction to adult children. It was, it was uh, to, be, to, to have integrity in our culture, to, to care for the youngest and the oldest and to honor them. But it was also instruction to learn how to uh, submit to God's given authorities in our lives. And, and the first authorities that we have in our lives is our parents. And, and we learn to submit to them so we can learn to submit to our God. Again, have you always honored the authorities in your life? Have you always and only honored your mother and father? Number uh, six, you shall not murder. Again, uh, I imagine when, when, when God told Moses this one, he, he kind of winced a little bit. Because remember, he was a murderer. He murdered the Egyptian and it wasn't that he didn't know it was wrong because the law hadn't come yet. No, it's very clear throughout all of Genesis with these moral laws, all, the law was in our consciousness. Like, like he knew it was wrong. Uh, and, but, but you might be thinking, okay, well finally the MRI shows a clean scan until Jesus comes along on the Sermon on the Mount and he says, you've heard that it is said, do not commit murder. But I tell you, if you're angry with your brother, You've committed murder in your heart. All Jesus is saying, he's not upping the ante. He's saying, hey, there's a there's a heart level uh, truth to all these commands, and and, uh, it's not enough just to not commit murder. Yeah, you've you've just left the land of the Egyptians who have treated the image of God lightly and and murdered and genocide. You're not going to do that, but but you're, you're not to even have that kind of thought in your mind. And so again, the MRI question is, have you ever been angry? Have you ever wished ill on others? Have you ever wished the destruction of others? Jesus would say, well, you're a lawbreaker. You're a lawbreaker. Well, the next one, number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Again, the priority of the family, the priority uh, of the, the cornerstone of society, the, the marriage covenant, uh, uh, where there's to be an exclusive love relationship, uh, a godly jealousy for husband and wife with each other that gets broken and torn, torn apart in adultery. And again, Jesus says, you've heard that. It says, do not commit adultery. But I say, if you've, if you've looked at a, a person lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. He, he takes it to the heart level once again. And all sin, like I said, spins out of control and it harms and wounds those closest to us. And so God says, my people are going to be a faithful people because I'm a faithful God. And they are to reflect my relationship. You shall not steal. This is, a, this is for the rich and the poor. The rich are not to take advantage of the poor and the poor are not to take from the rich. This is to bring unity in, in society. This is also uh, to give uh, that which we owe others, whether it's our our work or our government or otherwise. Like, have you ever taken anything that wasn't yours? Have you ever withheld something that uh, your, your work or your government or someone else was theirs? You shall not steal. And then we um, come to number nine. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. On the one level, this just means God's people are to be truth tellers. That's true. We, we tell the truth. But this was a protection for the weakest and the most vulnerable in society. This was in the court of law. The institutions of our government are not supposed to be uh, used for the rich and the powerful, but for everybody. And so we are going to be truth tellers in the court of law amongst our neighbors. And then finally, number 10 it says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And it's in this 10th command that we we see that actually all of them go much deeper than the surface. All of them have a heart level to them. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, who was a famous atheist, one of the new atheists, he died a few years ago of cancer, but he wrote a book called God is Not Great. And speaking of this 10th command, here's what he says. One may be forcibly restrained from wicked actions or barred from committing them, but to forbid people from contemplating them is too much. Christopher Hitchens is like, that's crazy. You're going to create a law that they can't even think about murdering someone. You can't even think about being envious about so, something. You can't even... Like, that's way too much. And actually, Christopher Hitchens is on to something that a lot of Christians miss here. It is too much. There is a heart level here that that goes beyond our capacity from an outward written law on stone. He's speaking of of a deeper desire, a deeper need, because... Tablets written on stone are not sufficient to get down into our hearts. What Christopher Hitchens didn't know at the time is the longing that we should all feel at the end of the Ten Commandments. Man, we need something else. We don't just need external laws to conform our behavior. We need something internal to to go to the external. In fact, this is the promise of the new covenant. This is what... Jeremiah, writing several hundred years later and several hundred years before Jesus, would, would prophesy. Jeremiah thirty-one says, "This: the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand, when I took them, uh, when I led them out of Egypt. So it's not going to be like the Mosaic covenant because they broke my covenant." Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Verse 33, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is the beauty of the new covenant. This is the supremacy of the new covenant. What what was powerless to work from the outside in is now going to work by the Holy Spirit from the inside out. Jesus would, would purchase that covenant for us. He would fulfill that covenant for us on the cross by his blood so that when we in faith trust in him, turn from our sin, We receive a new heart. Ezekiel said uh, he'll take the heart of stone out and put in a heart of flesh. This is the promise. And so if you've never bowed the knee to Jesus, if you've done the MRI test and you recognize I am a sinner, I have committed adultery in my heart or otherwise, I have lied, I have coveted, I have not honored God always, in every single one I have failed, I am desperately in need of Jesus, then you see the most beautiful thing about the Mosaic Covenant. The MRI of the Mosaic Covenant should create in us a longing, a desire for a Savior to come and point us to Jesus. And today you can come. You can come to Jesus. And maybe you are a christian, but 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 you 've somehow reworked things so that you feel this external pressure to conform and earn god 's favor and, and Jesus is saying, "You have my favor because you have my spirit, so walk in light of that, walk in the freedom that i 've offered you in Christ and the power of my holy spirit Well." This is also, this passage is also a vision of what God's people could be. All of the Ten Commandments are not just prohibitions do not do this, do not do that. They're also encouragements. So so think about them for a minute. What if we were the kind of people who not only we didn't commit adultery, but we so honored one another as brothers and sisters and, che- and raised them up as image bearers. What if we were the people who not only refrained from uh, murder, but what we sought to honor all of life from the womb to the tomb, and we used our resources to build up other image bearers? What if we were people who not only didn't steal from one another, but we saw that all that we have is from God and for God and to God, and we used it to bless other people? What if we were people who not only didn't covet what one another has and envy, but we saw the blessings that God put on different people and different families, and we just praise God for that? Like, praise God that you have a great job. Praise God that you have a great family. Praise God. Like, we just it and rejoiced. What kind of community would that be in a world of darkness? I say it almost every week. That would be the kind of community that would be a city on a hill where the world would look on and say, I want some of that. And so for the glory of God and the joy of all people, may God make that true in this place. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word to us this morning. Again, thank you for the children that are in here. Just a reminder even from your commandments of the primacy of the family and what you're doing in and through the family and then in our faith family, we thank you for that. Uh, I pray, Lord, that all, whether you're single or kids are out of the house, all would find the family of God in this place. Lord, thank you for the commands and the path of flourishing that they lead to. And thank you that though we fail each one of them, by your grace, through your blood, you have made a way for us to fulfill all of them in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.